Welcome to Jodowowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, etc., let's just say, and director Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and in this episode, we're looking at Jodorowsky and Juan Jimenez's eight-issue, decade-long spin-off of Jodorowsky's already legendary in-call saga, The Saga of the Meta Barons. Joining me on this journey are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcast. It's a Lothar to my tanto, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Uh, I'm pretty good, Doug. You know, other than living in a, a winter horror show designed to torture me, uh, things are good. <laughs> Liam, at the time that this episode will be released, it'll be the new year. This will be the first episode mm. of the new yeah. year. How mm-hmm. do you feel about that? Are you excited about 2023? Uh, no, I, I can't feel the human emotion of excitement anymore. <laughs> only only dread. I'd, I'd love to dive into that deeper and explore <laughs> these complex emotions. No, Liam. you wouldn't, Doug. <laughs> but there's just so much more to talk about today. With us, as always, on Jodowowski is the wonderful writer-director and the empress of the podcast. It's Julia Marchesi. How are you doing today, Julia? All right. I like being described as an empress. Yeah, it's fact. It's kind of weirdly spelled in. That's of course taken from the comic that we're going to be discussing today. So it's more like instead of empress, right? It's like emperoress. Yeah, uh, yeah. So which you know, it's uh, it, it still is a pretty neat title and very well. My my last name Marchesi is actually from the Italian French marquis, right? The right? title like marquis oh de Sade. So I am from nobility. Thanks very much. Well, at some I, point, I bow to you today. Hey, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, are you excited about the year 2023? I am am cautiously optimistic. No, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm excited. Let's let's get with that energy. Optimism. This is is my year. Let's go, universe. Uh If there's one thing that we've discovered on this podcast at this point is that there's a balance between light and darkness. And in this case, Liam is the darkness and you are the light. Hey, I'll take it. For now, let's see how we feel an hour from now. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of lightness, we actually have some major announcements in the Jodoverse that have been occurring over the last several months. Usually, I mean, I would talk with my co-host for a little while, get that chat in, but there's just so much exciting news to talk about. And probably the most exciting, outside of the comic work which we're about to talk about in detail, is the fact that just within the last couple of days... A new Alejandro Jodorowsky film has been announced. Uh, this is from an article from worldofreal.com. It's entitled, 95-year-old Alejandro Jodorowsky set to shoot Essential Voyage. Jodorowsky has just announced on Instagram that he's prepping a new movie called Essential Voyage. In English, uh, Jodorowsky published a book of poems with the same name. They, they suggest in this particular article that it might be an anthology film. At this point, we have no knowledge whatsoever. I actually, uh, yes, please. Sorry, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just really hope it's the it's the next chapter in his autobiographical series that he's been doing, because yeah. that's what I really want. So my fingers are crossed that that's what it is. What it is. I mean, I think it, at this point it seems like he's very focused on those autobiographical elements generally. So I think it's fully possible. I actually noticed with this announcement myself on Instagram. I I sent it to the both of you as soon as I saw the post. But when I read it, I was like. Has this been announced already? How come people aren't talking about that? And then, of course, people immediately afterwards started to talk about it. But this is from an Instagram post where Jodorowsky says, After six days of intense work preparing my new film, Essential Journey, on this Sunday of rest, I must like you also rest. I am exhausted. I'm so sorry. I can only wish you peace and rest. Tomorrow, Monday, you and I together, we can try to give advice that will help all living beings on our planet to improve the future. Hugs, Alejandro. I mean, very exciting. It is... 
I think maybe even I even said on our most recent episode that I thought that Jodorowsky's filmmaking days were behind him. I mean, he, you know, he's in his mid nineties at this point, but uh, this, this was very exciting, very inspiring news. Julia, I can tell already, cause you've said it outright that you're excited. Any other thoughts on this announcement? I just, that's what I, I just hope that it's something that makes him happy. Like I, I can understand maybe being at his age, not wanting to take on the in-cow, which would be on this, you know, enormous thing, sure. but maybe something smaller would be more palatable. Uh, and I'm, I'll watch anything he does, man. You know that, like I'm, I am hardcore to the bone for, till I die. <laughs> Liam, how about yourself? Uh, very excited about this news. I, I, I have to say the, the prospect of another film you know, is going to, of course, extend this podcast uh, yeah. a, a little bit longer as well. But that's very exciting news for me. How do you feel about this announcement? I am very optimistic. Um, yeah, there's there's no way to not be excited that isn't morbid, right? So I, I don't. I couldn't imagine anyone who likes this podcast is like another movie. No, <laughs> that sounds like a bad idea. Like I think. I mean, the last one he did, it, I, we haven't gotten to see it yet, but all the reports are that it's one of his best. So sure. why wouldn't I want another one? It's just really hard to hear and not feel a little like, okay, all right, well, let's see what happens. But yeah. I also wonder, and I again, I'm not trying to be morbid, but I wonder if he gets enough work done, if someone could finish it, if something happens. You know what I mean? Like, I, I assume at 95, you just plan to be creative and hope that it's going to work out and if it has the same heart that he's put into so many things, it's really hard for me to imagine it's not going to be a gift. I just, you know, I'm really pulling that this will be the good news I need in whatever year he's able to get this thing done, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it. I think what your concerns are just, your concerns are reasonable just based on someone living to that age and being creative at that age and the expectations behind it and how long it takes to put together a film. But, I mean, he's actively working on it. Uh, I think of every film that we've gotten since the release of Jodorowsky's Dune as being a gift that was right. partially yes. deliver, delivered to us because of that documentary. Uh, so and he the has fact that two very intelligent, very talented sons as well. That's I was true. thinking the same thing that like as much as part of me is a little anxious, I think, but there are so many creative people around him, whatever it is, he's going to make, I think he is, lives in the real world, right? I don't think he's thinking uh, anything, but this is a project I want to exist. So right. I'm going to push it forward. And if someone else needs to finish it, that is, that's what, that is what it is. And um, the fact that at this age, he's even thinking about giving us something, right? Like, he doesn't need to make anything. He doesn't need to do anything. This is the the purest, in my mind, version of a gift that you could get in the sense that it has it's all from him and there's nothing I could do in return that would be worth the effort. It's got to be at 95 to make a project, you know? And Julia, of course, you know better than the both of us just how much, you know, how much physical and mental energy you have to put into making a film. I yes. Mean, you know, he, he could be devoting, if he wanted to be creative, he, he has continued to write. He's been releasing books in recent years. Of course, his comic work, he could continue to do that. But to be able to pour yourself into a film at that age, boy, it is, it is a, it's a tall order, but it's one I'm very excited to follow through on. I, I didn't realize when we started this project that there'd be so much new Jodorowsky news and that's that's really keeping me very excited about all of this stuff that we're talking about. Definitely, he he will he will he will continue to influence forever, no matter what happens, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll continue to talk about it because that's our job. That's our uh, responsibility here on the show. <laughs> 
so I know that this is a very controversial topic. I'm just going to touch on it pretty quickly, which is that uh, one of the things that is getting a lot of ink lately is AI imagery, AI art, some people call it. Uh, I don't want to take it too seriously. Uh, well, I mean, I certainly take the topic seriously. I don't want to talk about it in a very serious manner, but I did want to bring up the fact that a couple of Alejandro Jodorowsky inspired uh, kind of selections of images have been going viral recently. Uh, basically, they are uh, prompts made to the Midjourney AI platform, which uh, be, were basically meant to create visuals based on the idea of Jodorowsky, say, directing a version of Tron, Jodorowsky directing a version of the television show Frasier. And I have some images for both of us to look at, which I'll also uh, link in the show notes as well. First, I want to get both of your take on this just briefly. And then I also want to ask you, because part of what makes these uh, images interesting is the idea of them taking a subject matter that, that Jodorowsky has never been involved in and then putting his visual spin on it. I want to get a sense from both of you, what are those elements that make up Jodorowsky's filmmaking style? What is it that it brings to these images? So starting with you, Julia, what did you think of these AI images? I think they're really cool. Um, I actually did one uh, for funsies as well. And I did Jodorowsky's Shining. Yes. And I did four. And these were like much lower budget than Midjourney. Like Midjourney looks amazing. Like these are just mm -hmm. low budget ones. But um, it was interesting how all four of the different AI put in like completely different imagery, but all four of them, I was like, yeah, it's a Jodorowsky thing. Like it looked enough like it. And interestingly, a lot of them put Jodorowsky in the image itself. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's so it true. was like, it's like Jack Torrance, but it's Jodorowsky playing Jack Torrance, which man, I would love to see that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that would be, if I could be in an alternate universe where that exists. Yes, please. Uh, I think and it's cool. I think it's cool. It's a, why not? Like, I think he has such a, you know, that's what makes him such a fascinating filmmakers he does have a very distinct style although it is different in all of his films so you know that's how does it. that that you know how does that happen but it's that's how it's how it works it's interesting that when you look at these images they are recognizably Jodorowskian right but there's something in your brain that says that I wonder if the prompt wasn't already there whether you would recognize it quite as well outside of his face appearing or some variation on a sort of his face appearing in these images. Liam, I know that you have complex thoughts on AI art. What did you think of these, uh, these images? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I saw, uh, I didn't see as many of the Frasier ones, but I saw the whole run <laughs> of, of Tron ones. And, uh, you know, this does kind of give a hint, at least to the visual style that we associate with him, at least I think these things tend to borrow from his earlier stuff in that yes, they sir. involve a lot of Mesoamerican art. They involve a lot of things that look like maybe Geiger did them. Um, and they involved a lot of um, set design that was epic and maybe a little intense you know yes. like a little bit yes, abstract large rooms absolutely. yeah 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 yeah, and of course with tron i mean everything in tron already looked crazy but the <laughs> idea that it, this looked crazy in a way that like felt related to him it all makes sense and you know i i do have very complex feelings about ai in general um i you know at minimum uh, you know, I, I wish we would call it uh, AI sampling, you know, yeah. in which case, where's that for? I, look, how come an AI can do it, but I still can't get the first De La Soul record on Spotify? You know what I mean? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. These computers are just doing with art what De La Soul did, but I can't hear the record. 
bums me out. But that being said, I do like that um, the, the the images they're taking from, they do remind me a lot of very specific movies. But I do, I find myself wondering, um, would it be different if there was more taking from his later works? Because right. having not seen those yet, I don't know if these these images feel to me very El Topo, Holy Mountain, maybe a little Santa Sangre in some of them, but very much El Topo and Holy Mountain. And so I wondered, you know, what what uh, what uh, what those later movies, if they were uh, uh, used as, as much. Not as distinctly visual. Yeah, as that's what I was thinking. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. So, so, so yeah. I think you're really taking from the big, the big, the big ones. Well, and I also think that the the unused stuff for Dune is probably being yeah. used in because you know remember this is a this is a program crawling the internet for images and combining them i'm sure they're also pulling from images that were in the dune documentary you know or or from the things themselves you know yeah it's interesting to think about from meta barons made it in there that's, yeah, well, that's possible it. too yeah and when you think about it meta barons itself is sort of a sampling of the dune work in some yes, ways i mean there's 100%. certainly echoes of it within it including references to some of the artwork that was created but just the way that art begets art i mean it's interesting like i said it, i do, i know that people have very complex feelings in regards to it but i did think that these were very neat kind of artistic exercises um, that could also prompt creativity based on them as well. Sure. I like some of these images very, very much. I mean, also, I want to see a Tron movie that looks like that. Like the Frasier yeah. thing is just funny, but the Tron images, I thought <laughs> this would be better than either of the Trons. And I don't hate either of the Trons, but those were cool <laughs> images, you know? I don't think we've ever talked about this before. Julia, yeah. you've, you've mentioned, so you, when you cr- were, were creating a prompt, you did Jodorowsky's Shining. Yeah. If there was another project, a favorite film or maybe even a favorite adaptation that you would like to see Jodorowsky have handled in the past, is there anything that springs to mind? <laughs> you know what sprung to mind? And this is very strange. Uh, it's a very, it's, it, so my, my very favorite movie is, uh, this is a terrible answer because there's much, anyway, my favorite movie is The Breakfast Club uh, sure. because it shows that all you need are uh, good directors, good actors, good script to make a great movie. It would be interesting to t- have him take on something like that where it's just character work, mm. right? Because so much of what he does is big visual style. It would be interesting to see him go small. Or then what if you did like a Jodorowsky's Moulin Rouge and like where the, what the fuck would that be? Yeah, just let, like going buck wild in terms of yeah. all the visuals and also the music. Yeah, that's interesting. Baz Luhrmann's already pretty insane, right? Like yeah. I don't know how you could be more insane than Baz Luhrmann, but Jodorowsky might be able to do it. <laughs> how about yourself, Liam, before we move on? I don't think I have a good example because I think um, what I love about his stuff is is so from his kind of weird perspective. Wrong, Liam. The answer is Jodorowsky's Star Wars. <laughs> oh, okay. That's fair. That is actually fair. But I, I guess I guess because it's it's the the reason I was kind of thinking about that a little bit is is that I think I'd want it to be something I don't like. Like I right. think I'd want him to take on something I think is bad. That maybe there's seeds there of something good, but the end product doesn't fucking work. And I don't know what that would be. I mean, knowing my taste, Doug, it'd probably be some like straight to video Canon films idea. Like give him (laughs) the bones of that and say, make this yours. And then I'm sure it would turn into some unbelievable nightmare that I would be very happy with, you know? Jodorowsky's Invasion USA. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking something more sci-fi, but yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
Uh, there have been some recent releases, uh, comic releases to discuss, starting back on Tuesday, August 9th. Humanoids released The Jodorowsky Library, Volume 3, uh, which included uh, the origin story behind the universe's greatest warriors, the Metabarons, who we're about to talk about today. Metabarons Genesis Kastaka, or Kastaka, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit today, as well as the other Metabarons work, uh, kind of spin-off work. Of course, just to make it very clear, today we're going to be talking about specifically the eight issues, or the eight volumes of the saga of the Metabarons. Uh, but yeah, so they've been regular releasing these Jodorowsky libraries, a good way to kind of catch up on a lot of the scattered work that Jodorowsky has out there. Uh, on top of that, we've also been keeping a very close eye on the Incall spin-offs that were announced last year, uh, including the one released one at this point, Psychoverse, written by Mark Russell and uh, illustrated by Yannick Paquette. That's set before the events of the classic series. Psychoverse features uh, Don John DeFool as he teams up with the Metabaron and Kill Wolfhead to face the titular Psychoverse. We've mentioned before we have certain reservations about someone else telling stories in this in not necessarily in the greater Jodoverse, but certainly ones that are connected directly to the Incall. I'm hoping that on our next episode, uh, which will be taking place, of course, in uh, later in 2023, that maybe we'll have, be able to discuss that in a little more detail. As of right now, I just wanted to let you know that as of November 15th, 2022, it's available to purchase. It's out there. Very talented uh, writer, very talented artist. And um, and we're actually hoping that in the near future, we might be able to have a little chat with Mark Russell to, uh, to talk a little bit about his Psychoverse uh, project and also some of his influence from Jodorowsky himself. Wanted to finish this general announcements section with the recent Jodorowsky Instagram post. I thought it was very sweet. It's a picture, uh, actually a short video of Jodorowsky and his uh, niece, Cersei, who is three years old. <laughs> he offered the little girl a game. He says, I would be an ogre trying to take rest, taking a nap. Uh, Cersei would then wake me up abruptly. The ogre would protest, then go back to sleep. She would wake me up again. I would protest again, then fall asleep, and so on until tiredness. I advise you to see the result. <laughs> Pascal filmed everything without Cersei and I noticing. I realized that the best break for six days of work is to play with children. It still amazes me a little bit just to see someone who we have seen be so fiery and controversial that he's a grandfather playing with his niece, right, and playing with children and, and really having that kind of childlike... Uh, element to him that has always existed, but seems to have come out even a little bit more as he's gotten a little older. But I thought it, it was kind of reminds me of his of his mime days. Yes, absolutely. And honestly, I think I mentioned this before on his Instagram. He often does do things that remind us very much of kind of his earlier career and his mime background. I mean, it's it's amazing how these things come full circle, um, and maybe that itself might be an influence on his upcoming film who sure, knows i hope i hope being please. a mime is to bring people joy right that's the yes. whole point of it and i guess so is creating any sort of art i think you you're hinting i'm more than hinting at it uh julia i hope this uh upcoming film is a family affair i'd like to see as many yeah. jodorowsky kin especially you know after the tragedy that that occurred several months ago we'd love to see the family really pull together and there's so many talented people in that family generally um mm -hmm. why not right let's see it moving on today we are going to be talking about the Meta Barons Saga. Uh, this is a expansive, uh, like universe-crossing story. As I mentioned already, eight volumes. This is involving a character, the Meta Baron, uh, who we've actually discussed uh, to some extent on our In Call episode. Uh, and that character, you know, really kind of comes out of nowhere, but is given a lot of weight right away. We learn of that entire family history in these eight volumes. 
uh, just going back to some of that history for those who might not already be familiar, the first appearance of a Meta Baron uh, was in May 1981 in the first Incall comic book series. This is followed by a series of prequels that concern this character's origin, which is what we're going to be talking about today, presented as the narration of the android Tonto to the android Lothar of the Master's Achievements. So it's two robots basically talking to one another, giving stories about the history of this character. I had a little bit of an interview from back from 2010 with Jodorowsky where he talks just briefly about how this comic was put together. He's asked in that interview, do you take risks in your work? His answer is yes. In the Meta Barons, I always finish each book with an impossible crisis. They have a problem. The person has no testicle. He needs to make a son. How impossible? I wait, I wait, and then slowly... Thank you. The solution came. It's kind of a mediumity, a kind of inspiration. In one moment, I have the idea. Then when I start to write, everything comes. It's like when you are a photographer and you put the paper in the acid and slowly the photograph starts to develop. It's exactly like that. And it's not something that I considered when I was reading it. That The other thing to, to uh, keep in mind with this work is that it was uh, published, these eight volumes, over a 11-year uh, span. So there was large gaps in between each volume. So the idea that Jodorowsky was specifically setting up uh, impossible uh, riddles to get out of at the end of each issue, you once you know it, it's hard to miss just how difficult it would be to work these out. But uh, there are some very ingenious ideas. But I'm, again, very interested to hear both of your takeaways in regards to that. Uh, maybe even before we get into it, just to get a little uh, feedback on that. Liam, what did you think of, of that as a as a concept where you tell a story and you end it with a, sort of a cliffhanger that you then have to come up with a solution to maybe a year afterwards or, or multiple years afterwards? There's a part of me that feels like I could tell that's what was going on because some of the solutions felt so wild just <laughs> incredible just pushing the boundaries of whatever but because we have such a history with him as a as a writer and a creator none of that felt incongruous and it was all a reminder for me that each escalation of violence and power with the character was not in and of itself the point like i feel like as a whole if you take the whole collection we end up in a place that kind of makes sense of some of that. And I right. really appreciated that. And I think that, as, as he's made clear, it doesn't come from him sitting there and saying, okay, this is where we're starting. This is how I want to end. I've created my arc. Now I just have to fill in the details. Instead, it's he's consistent in who he is. And so while there's all these wild decisions being made, it's all headed in a direction that feels like where he would want it to go. So it's more about his ideas and less about the narrative like having to uh fulfill some someone someone else's expectations it helps that this is a universe that has not only incredibly advanced technology but also magic within it yep. so and these are godlike beings already so in terms of finding solutions it's not even really a deus ex machina it's really just like you can come up with a technological solution it could be a magical solution like you said the the ones he decides to go with tend to be pretty friggin' wild. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I would say that they would they would um, risk credulity, except everything that happens in a lot of these books for the most part. There's a lot that stretches what uh, what you might be able to accept, but that's that's what Jodorowsky is all about. How about yourself, Julia? Did you ever uh, kind of catch on to the idea that that uh, he was basically creating riddles that he would then solve later? Uh, I didn't, but it makes sense, and I think 
I, one of the things I admire about him is how hard he challenges himself. Yes. Because like that would never cross my mind to do that to myself, you know? But like for him, it's always this, I always feel like it was this kind of like warrior mentality where it's like, I can do anything and I have to challenge myself. And this like the level of self-discipline that Jodorowsky's have, Jesus, man, I am so envious. The fact <laughs> that you can challenge your brain with an impossible task and then be like this is even if it takes five years it's fine i'll figure it out it's an amazing it's so awesome that metaphor as well of the the photograph that you put into the liquid and then it reveals itself i mean that that to me is kind of representative of his thought process generally where it's just like some of it just seems to come from the ether like it just pops into his brain or just appears in his brain and it's a it's a way of working that i would never have the confidence to do but i mean when you've been working for as long as he has you can see that oh i guess it's also being able to trust that you're going to be able to come up with something um or maybe it's about compartmentalizing and you're like well i don't know the answer now let's give it a year see what develops <laughs> quite literally uh on this episode we're going to be covering the meta baron saga as written by Jodorowsky and drawn by the late Juan Jimenez. Uh, since this is a complete work, we thought it was best to cover this part in detail. It's already plenty to talk about. Don't worry there. However, there is a lot more Meta Baron's content that is out there. That includes the prequel series Kastaka, which was released in two parts, uh, Dial the First Ancestor in 2007 and The Rival Twins in 2013. Both of, the, both of these were written by uh, Jodorowsky as well and drawn by Das Patoris. Uh, since Juan Jimenez was uh, busy at the, uh, the time with other projects. There's also the one-issue Weapons of the Meta Baron, also written by Jodorowsky, illustrated by Travis Sheree and uh, Zoran Janjitov. And uh, again, all of this is published by Humanoids. And there's a follow-up series to this series that we're going to be talking about today, just called The Meta Baron, which is a collaboration between Jodorowsky and Jerry Frisson, uh, and that has multiple uh, uh, different artists that have worked on that. There are currently six issues of just that series called The Meta Baron that have been collected in what's called The Meta Baron's Second Cycle. And most recently, Frisson has continued to write a spin-off series called Simac, drawn by Jean-Michel Ponzio. And there are currently two issues of that, the most recent being from 2019. So I know that's a lot. There's a lot of content out there. But I will say that um, because they are released in these kind of collections... You don't necessarily have to go outside of that, just like with the in-call. If you just wanted to read the in-call, I think you could find that a very satisfying. A lot of it is just kind of added detail. And uh, I also would like to say that I think you could probably appreciate, and I know you did, Liam, when you first encountered the Meta Baron's work yourself, that even if you never read the in-call, I think you could still appreciate this work and still get a complete story out of it. Because there aren't, even though there are characters referenced and incidents referenced on the periphery, uh, if this isn't a series that requires knowledge of the characters and the incidents from the in-call for the most part, though uh, we'll see what everyone feels about that. Uh, we'll be talking about Juan Jimenez's uh, art in this because he, of course, he worked on all of the pieces. He unfortunately passed away in 2020 of COVID. Jodorowsky said this about his death. I feel like we should end on this before we take our break and come back and talk about it in detail. He said, I closely collaborated with Juan Jimenez for 10 years, and together we created the Metabarons saga. What facilitated my task as we offered him to work on the complex world of the Metabarons was that he already embodied the immortal no-name, the last Metabaron. In my unconscious, Juan Jimenez cannot die. He will continue on drawing like the master warrior that he was. Obviously a very close relationship, similar, it seems, to the relationship that Jodorowsky had with Mobius that we've talked about at length on the in-call. Uh, we've had concerns before about art uh, because of some of the comics that we've talked about on this podcast. So I'll, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. But there's just so much. There's, I mean, there's, we're talking about 
eight volumes, 60 plus pages each. I know you all have put a lot of time into this, so let us not delay any longer. Let us take, or let's take a short delay. Let's, let's take a break. <laughs> we'll, del- we'll delay just a little bit longer. Let us take a break when we return 1993 to 2003. Let's talk about the Meta Baron saga. <laughs> It's a story of epic proportions, chronicling the lives of the Metabaron's descendants from his great-great-grandfather Othon to the current Metabaron, Nameless, who follow a strict code of honor and extreme traditions such as patricide and mutilation. Throughout the series, the Metabaron family members work as mercenaries, fight with different factions and among themselves while they struggle to find love and accept their destiny. It's the Metabaron Saga, which uh, has been published from 1993 till 2003. As I've already mentioned, it's in eight different volumes, all of them written by Alejandro Jodorowsky and uh, drawn by Juan Jimenez. Uh, Jimenez himself is a very famous and uh, beloved Argentinian illustrator. Uh, I haven't actually encountered much of his work myself, though he did design the Harry Canyon segments of the film Heavy Metal. Uh, Liam, I'm sure you've seen that that movie before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah and, I like and, that movie. And when I see his art in this work that we're talking about, it actually, the first, even more so than Mobius to a certain extent, I think heavy metal. Like, that art looks like what I used to see in those heavy metal magazines when I was growing up. Uh, so in some ways, he kind of really envelops that sort of style, at least to me. Uh, has a lot of different collaborators that he's worked on over the time, uh, over the years. Uh, and I'm sure his- that every 14-year-old boy who read that magazine thanks them both <laughs> for the scantily clad ladies in this mm-hmm, series mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i thought mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they know uh, their audience you know amenez's <laughs> style has become famous for the extreme attention he devotes to technical and historical details his series pick ass has been defined as a comic encyclopedia of world war ii so the story of the Metabaron clan is told by Tonto to Lothar, their two robots, while they wait for the return of their master to the Metabunker. Initially, Tonto says that they've been waiting six months uh, for their master to return, but later the story skips at least three centuries ahead. And that's something that we're really, we won't get into in any large detail, but this, the scope of this story is ridiculous, both in terms of time period and in terms of just the, the amount of physical space it covers. Um, this is, but it would indicate that the Tonto starts telling the story six months before the Metabaron went searching for John DeFool in the Blacking Call. But like I said before, it's not that important for the actual understanding of these books. So since there are eight issues, I thought it would be worthwhile to try to compartmentalize it a little bit, cut our conversation in half, first talking about the first four books and then chatting about the remaining four. Since there's around 500 pages of material to discuss, it's probably better for us to talk about it a little bit broadly than uh, in, in terms of the work as a whole. So those first four issues are 1992's Othon, the great-great-grandfather, 
Honorata, the great-great-grandmother from 1993, Agonar, the great-grandfather from 1995, and Oda, the great-grandmother from 1997. Uh, there's so much that happens in each issue. I don't really want to summarize it in any great detail, but I do have quick kind of brief summaries here. In that first issue, Othon, the great-great-grandfather from 1992, the issue chronicles the beginnings of the Metabarons, explaining how their secret of the sacred oil was revealed, unleashing a galactic battle for it, and how Othon lost his wife, Edna, and accidentally killed his son, Barry. Uh, in the second issue, Honorata, the great-great-grandmother. In this issue, Othon is knighted Metabaron by the Emperor for saving the Imperial Egg, and he and Honorata uh, father a child, Agonar, thanks to her witch powers. Agonar, the great-grandfather from 1995, is summarized as, in this issue, Othon and Agonar leave Okar, and they face the Shabda'ud witches. Agonar kills his father following the Metabaron tradition and meets Oda, and then in Oda, the great-grandmother from 1997, in this issue, Agonar and Oda have their revenge on the Shabda'ud witches. Agonar fathers a child with a Hanarada-possessed Oda and becomes a mercenary willing to destroy the Empire. It's it's overwhelming in terms of the uh, the actual events, especially because... They are sometimes they come about and in, in seeming with these Jodorowskian flights of fancy where, you know, basically characters start with with having a magical horse and end with killing millions of people in different galaxies. It just the scope of it is just so large. But with all of that in mind, let's start from kind of a base level. Having read specifically these first four issues, but you can talk about it more generally if you want as well. Starting with you, Julia, what did you think? of the Meta Baron saga. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> like just because as we you know, I mentioned every time we do a comic and comics aren't have never really been my scene. Sure. So diving into it through Jodorowsky has really helped me become really interested in it. And I thought that this art was stunning and um really brutal and sexy and weird and i thought it was it just kind of went in every direction that you could want it to and you know there's a lot of pages that you could just frame that page right it's mm -hmm. so incredibly gorgeous and i feel like it was a really it's a really good marriage of jodorowsky's story with uh Himis's art if you didn't know ahead of time that Jodorowsky was the one writing this story, were there elements in it that would have been hints to you? Yeah, I think so. I think so, but I think there's a lot of it. I think a lot of it works the reverse, right? That, that because I know the lengths that Jodorowsky goes to in his films, I'm not ever surprised by anything that happens right. anymore. So like there is that I'm like, oh, okay, that's insane. Okay. And then I'll keep going because it's just not, I don't, you know, I he can't really shock me, which, which is, you know, whatever it is, but like I'm prepared for his outrageousness. So I think that that's something, if I had come into these comics and not known it at all, I probably would have been a lot more shocked, but sure. he, he, you know, it's like reading, it looks like if you're going to read like a John Waters comic book, right? You're like, right. oh, I'm going to get shocked. <laughs> right? Like, you know, of course this is what we live for. Sometimes even the shocking things that happen take me by surprise, I have to admit, just because I wasn't even considering that it might have went in that direction. For those who have read the Incal books and have not dipped into the Metabaron uh, spinoffs and, and their work generally, I just wanted to get your take on this, Julia, before I move over to Liam. Do you feel like the tone of these books are similar to the Incal? Yeah, I think so. But I, f I feel like we have... We, I, I miss the kind of John DeFool Depot kind of relationship yeah. mm -hmm. because, to be honest, I know we're going to talk about this, but uh, Tonto and Lotho drive me bonkers. And I'm just <laughs> like, please skip them. I don't care. Please find another way to give me some narration. I lose these robots. So I feel like to have a character that you 
are because you know that obviously the meta barons have no sense of humor right so like the, right. you need that comic relief and i understand that and i understand they're also kind of like a greek chorus and like telling you what's happening like i get it too but i just feel like i would prefer there to be i don't know kind of like a, 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 a i don't know well, I don't know. Julia, just for that, <laughs> you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, 300 times. <laughs> oh, paleo Christ. <laughs> Liam, I'm going to ask you the same question. I hope you've thought it over. Now that you've, you've, you've experienced all eight volumes of the saga of the Metabarons, what did you think? Um, I definitely uh, enjoyed reading it. I really, really liked it. Uh, I think these first four... I might have liked more than the mm -hmm. second four. Interesting. Except for I liked where we ended, but we'll get there later. Ah, interesting. Um, I think one thing I noticed is as the story starts, it's all a lot more granular in this in a way. Like we're a lot mm -hmm. more involved narratively in events that are um, not that they're not wild from the beginning, but they're a lot more focused on this family and moving with them in kind of a logical way. And as the story goes, we start jumping longer periods of time. We start having more crazy results of decisions and <laughs> more intense stuff. And, and in a way that makes sense because he's expanding it. Like, you know, one huge difference between this and the in-call, right, is that for parts of the in-call, despite the size of the city shaft, it's a little bit claustrophobic because we're in that space, right? And we right. know that there's a wider universe, but a lot of what's happening is there. Whereas the Meta Barons are pretty quickly jumping from planet to planet to galaxy to galaxy. And by the end, we're going into other dimensions and realities and being right. attacked by other realities. So the scope just keeps expanding um, on this thing. And that's really exciting, but it starts to feel, for me, a little less like connected uh, because we're also, as we are expanding the world, he also then limits the character base. So that uh, after after a bit, it starts to feel like the only character is the Meta Baron, uh, whoever the Meta Baron is like in a tragic relationship with, right. and whoever the Meta Baron is going to have to kill. And whoever the Meta Baron is going to have to kill, they're not a really important character because they're just going to be dead soon, right? So like, it's it's really like the main characters end up being you know uh, uh, the spe you know specifically being Honorata and Othan or you know what I mean Agnar sure. and and uh, uh, Oda and as opposed to when we very first start and it's more like the you know the the Castica family and the secret of the stuff I forget what it's called but the floaty stuff sure and, and, right, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah the floaty oil. Um, <laughs> which is great because what I love about the floaty oil, right? It's kind of a goofy concept, except for almost immediately, if you're thinking about a intergalactic government and, and, and the politics of all these different forces, sure, it's obvious right away, like, oh shit. <laughs> oh no, that's, that's really going to change everything. Oh right. no. It's a game changer. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and one of the themes of the book that I really appreciated was this sense of like, survival is sometimes like there's there's actually this weird thing where um they keep saying early on victory or death right right but there's a number of times where the the the, the family that becomes the meta barons or the meta barons themselves choose survival oh mm -hmm. well in this case survival is actually how we win and that's interesting you know because it allows them to become at first they're just very formidable warriors 
And the creation of the Meta Barons is to create ultimately the most invincible warrior. And honestly, while there are a number of um, cliffhangers that we've already discussed that uh, Yodorovsky had to work his way through, the biggest thing for me, the biggest barrier is this idea of like, once you create an invincible, an, you know, at least nearly, if not totally invincible character, where's the narrative go, right? Right. But that never really is a problem, though, again, some people might be. Uh, overwhelmed by the uh, extent to which he's surprising, like he's choosing these insane, you know, narrative choices, or whatever that might be overwhelming. It, it, it is true that he never, in my mind, loses the thread of like, what about this is going to be challenging? And I think right. in each story, in both sections, that's never a problem. He always finds this is why this is interesting. Yes, this character is in theory invincible, but there's this other thing going on that adds drama to this in a way that's really compelling so uh i loved all of that i i I just uh i found myself towards the end feeling like we were moving at a pace because it it all felt a little more uh uh high i don't want to say meta because they're meta barons but you know what i mean like it felt a little (laughs) further away and a little less in the weeds that sometimes it felt like despite there being eight volumes, we were moving at a bit of a clip. Like we were going a little faster and there was a little less like character interaction. But on the other hand, it's, I also felt like it felt like a story that one person might be telling to another. So like early on, there's a bit more texture between people, but really if Tonto was telling the story to Lothar, he's not going to get into like, then on Tuesday over breakfast, (laughs) the Metabarian had this conversation. It all starts to become a bit more epic and a bit more honestly mythic. And I think that works. It just, uh, when it first started, it was a little more personal to the individuals that become uh, that that sort of end their life as the Costicas to become the clan that is the Metabarons. It sure. felt like a little more interactive in that way. But on the other hand, uh, despite there being these big stakes, and I think for me, uh, the scope of what they're facing in those early, very early stories was like, it was a little emotional for me. It kind of got to me a little bit about it. There's something about this world, and I wouldn't even just say the world of the Metabarons or the Incall, but often in stories that I would read in heavy metal, it would be these like, seemingly impossible characters in a world that is also impossible, you know, in which in these stories, even the slightest decisions could lead to the deaths of millions of people. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, after a while, I get used to it. But when we first started, I, I was a little more maybe emotionally invested than I was towards the end. But again, we're reading a story that is just leading us to a character that we know. So right. maybe it's it maybe it's a little harder to be worried. Though I do think, again, we'll get there, but the where it ends up I thought was really compelling. You know, it it in those first couple of issues it's more like a Greek myth, right? Where it yes. just feels it feels like a story that doesn't necessarily have to follow the kind of logic that our world does, but there's a logic to it. But as it gets bigger and bigger, it's almost like a creation myth, right? I mean, it gets so huge and, and there's so many characters involved with it. I also, you know, you're, it's a very well uh, stated point that emotions in this story, in all of the volumes are incredibly important because these are characters that are, are repressing their emotions. So every time there is a mention of it, or you see one of these meta barons feel something, it becomes that much more important and of course, we find out later that that those emotions are going to be what really we've been been heading towards the entire time. Uh, just to give my thoughts on this kind of briefly, I really enjoyed my read of this. Uh, my feeling echoes what both of you had to say, which is that, uh, you know, I started with really 
not low expectations. They were actually quite high because of how much I enjoyed the Incal. But really, weariness or or concern regarding the you know all of what I had to kind of go through and get through. But the fact is, this is a very visual story. And there's lots of like, you know, two page spreads of space battles and things like that. A lot of kind of pulp sci-fi, pulp fantasy that's on display here. And it's not hard to follow in the ways that some of the metaphysical aspects of the Incal sometimes were uh, because of that kind of high space fantasy that's on display. I, I Even though there's a lot of weirdness, a lot of oddness on display, I never had trouble kind of following the story. Even if it does, as we'll get into some uh, in some more detail, go into some strange places. Before we talk about some of those plot aspects, uh, you already mentioned it, Julia, that you enjoyed the art in here from Juan Jimenez. Uh, that some of it, you know, you could basically, and, and I imagine you can buy posters of some of the art in this. Uh, did you find that the art was consistent all the way through? And maybe you could describe it a little bit in comparison to Mobius's art from the Incall. Uh, I feel like the... I don't want to say that Mobius is more, more cartoony because that's not it at all, but I feel like he sure. draws uh, bodies in a more cartoonish fashion. Yeah. I feel like the bodies in this are quite normal human human bodies for the most part, unless they're, they're aliens. I guess there's <laughs> like a slightly more realistic this to this, even though it's not, I don't know how to describe it. This is terrible. I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> no, it's okay. It is hard to describe, right? Because it's it, it's both more realistic and also still alien at the same time, because of course, we're also looking at a lot of alien bodies in this. I, I kind of would describe it as a grotesque realism. Like yeah. it is meant to represent actual bodies to some extent, but it also pushes the grotesquery of things. And in fact, when we do see creatures that are not themselves human, often they're the most extreme things or, or even what we see to the human bodies is kind of pushed, but it's none of it is like, I, you know, I, I, again, Julia, I, I know what, you, what you're saying about cartoony. There's something, while Mobius's backgrounds are often very intensely based in reality, a lot of his characterization can be a little more stylized. And this didn't feel that way. But but what I thought made it so interesting is because uh, his style, while somewhat more based in reality, he's being asked to depict things that are beyond reality, that are yeah. <laughs> dream images. And using that style to depict those things I just loved it. And and again, this is no disrespect to Mobius. I really found this art a lot more my style while still loving the art of the call as well. L let me come back to you on that. Just going back to you, Julia. The other thing, of course, is that this art is a little more sexual. I think that's fair yeah. to say. There's a and lot of like phallic I'm, imagery. I'm not... I'm not. I'm. I am all about the pervious side of Jodorowsky. I like <laughs> yeah, that side yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah, I got to yeah. be honest. You get a lot of that at the Encal too, though, because you get sure. all the crazy like uh, play parlors. You can go in and like build your ladies and stuff like that. So I feel Absolutely. like he's, he's playing in that grown up, which is interesting because I feel like his movies, his there was nudity in his movies, but it's almost never sexual. And when there is a sex scene, it's always really uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's interesting to have scenes where you can get a little bit more of that. I, yeah, they are. I, I, I think I don't want to disrespect Mobius either and say, you know, me saying that he's cartoony, like, please, the internet, don't come for me. I don't mean that at all. His art is <laughs> stunning. Um, it would, This was really cool. And I, f I feel like there's a lot of, I could see Jodorowsky in a lot of the characters and sometimes literally, like there's sometimes frames of different meta barons. So I'm like, oh, that's just Jodorowsky. Like that's, oh, and yeah. I love Absolutely. that. Like it feels like almost like an Easter egg to find him in the <laughs> comics. I sometimes, I mean, maybe it's just because of, of 
some of the pomposity that he brings to certain interviews, but it's hard not to think about Jodorowsky's own feelings about things and his own perspectives when you hear, you know, certainly the poet warrior type character in this seems to be a little bit of a self-insert at the very least. Mm-hmm. I, I, I bring up the sexuality mostly because of what you were saying, Liam, about the grotesquerie of the images, which I agree with. It is, they are kind of grotesquely real at times, while at the same time being very, sleek and sexual at times as well and trying to kind of walk in those both both of those worlds personally i i mean i love the artwork in this i think it's the the most incredible thing about it is just how consistently great it is like the art from the first book and the art from the last you, you know there isn't any degradation of quality it all feels like someone who's working at the height of their powers i think i find the storytelling by mobius a little bit easier uh, sometimes because of their grotesquerie on display here, I have trouble just kind of telling um, what I'm supposed to be paying attention to, how the the elements that we're looking at are interacting and the kind of, of, of pacing of that. So sometimes I find it a little confusing to look at, though because of the storytelling to me is not as obscure as the in-call is, I never kind of lost the plot or anything like that. Do you have anything else to say about the art in this, Liam? Oh, I mean, I think the... For me, some of the most interesting stuff is these large events. Though I will say on the comic book reader I was using, that was some of those images were hard to see uh, sure. uh, just because there's Zoom issues. But basically the, the larger events that happen take a lot of detail. So they're kind of massive destructions or yeah. whatever, uh, huge battles. There's a lot of detail in those that I find really impressive. However, in some of the smaller scenes, there's still something very um, stark but beautiful about the art as well. So I like it overall. I, I do think the kind of futuristicness of this, like the thing that sort of combines, like these are, in a lot of ways, the Casticas and then eventually the Metabarons up until No Name, who is a little bit more like a rocker. No Name looks like a rocker. <laughs> yeah. And b before yeah. before No Name, we're dealing with space Vikings. These are all different flavors of space Vikings. <laughs> and uh, and there's a certain extent... Space Klingons. Oh, wait. Well, Klingons are already space yeah, 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 yeah. Klingons, I guess. There's a certain extent to which... <laughs> there's a certain extent to which immediately all this future tech is so fucking retro. Like, everything is retro future tech. But I yeah. do feel like we're so far in the future that I think it's impossible to, for me, and I think for a lot of people, to think of a future that far, so removed from Earth in any way that we understand it, that it isn't sort of like post-apocalyptic, you know? So while all this tech is in the future, it also looks like something went wrong at some point. Like, it's not one of those futures where everything is smooth and glossy and pretty. Like, some of the most futuristic shit in these comic books looks like it was welded together by a mad person. Right. And, and I think that that's a certain kind of style. And I like that style because I kind of grew up on, I think probably now, people who are <laughs> ripping off this artist. But, uh, but, but I do know that that's not always how people that's not everyone's favorite version of the future let's say um, one of my favorite things uh even though it's a little grotesque as well about the meta barons is that as they kind of beget one another that the mutilation is involved right that in terms of being trained to be a meta baron part of that is being mutilated and part of it is a show of um lack of willingness to show pain to show concern to show sadness all of that my favorite part, and I think it's actually in the second half, but I'm going to mention it right now, is when the Meta Baron takes out a ham slicer, like like an old yeah. fashioned. Oh my god! 
when he mentions that he's like this is like something they used to use way back you know on earth they used it to slice meat and it's just like a giant ham slicer and of course it goes into some really gross places because basically he makes his their own child cut their arm off uh, and not show any pain during it but just the idea that somewhere in the recesses of all of this and there are you know every once in a while there's references to the fact that this is the future of our present but someone could just have like, oh, right, here's the technology from the past, including the things that they use to slice meat. I just thought it was very, very amusing. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a little bit of a hint of a sense of humor. And that is, by the way, the biggest difference between this and the Incal. And, and you mentioned it already, Julia, is that there's humor here, specifically with the Tonto and Lothar characters, which we're going to get to in just a second. But it's not nearly as silly goofy it doesn't have that john defoe character it doesn't have because yeah, like it, the meta Marin doesn't know he's making a joke there yes like, we exactly think it's right. funny he doesn't right. think it's funny right so like that's kind of the, the difference well i it's think that the ink call too i i wonder if that reflects to this idea that this is a tragic everything about this is tragic which you know to some extent i'd like because sometimes the meta bears make decisions that i think uh, that can't work out, and then right. it doesn't, okay. and I like that. But I, but I, but with the in call, even though everything can be really there, are, there are lots of dark aspects of the in call. It's not like every moment there's. It's like every time Lothar suggests, "Oh, this is going to work out," Tonto's like, "You fucking idiot!" <laughs> like he's so mad. <laughs> Because it's like, no, nothing works out. This is a story where nothing. It doesn't matter that the Meta Baron has murdered all of their enemies. Nothing works out for them. Everything is sadness. Stop guessing that it's going to be okay. It's never okay. And I just, there's something about that that I like, but it certainly <laughs> makes the the idea that the Meta Bear might be cracking jokes really hard because you're just like, no, nah, that's not a thing. So we got to rely on these robots. And I'm with you, Julia. The robots suck. Okay. I thought you might be on my camp. You know, it kind of reminds me of um, the, the, the dopey cops from Last House on the Left. Yes. Right. Which are just, I'm like, they get, make, I understand you need some levity, right? Because this movie's intense, but please stop. I don't want them. Get them out. So I feel like this, like, I can take a tragedy. You can give me eight volumes of tragedy. I'm fine with that. I don't need really comic relief. Because, like, I think of, because I love Last of the Left, but I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a better movie, mainly because they cut that out. And yeah. it's just 90 minutes of brutal, and there's nothing else there. So I think I could take more hardness than he's willing to give, really. Yeah, it's interesting. We're not going to give a spoiler yet in regards to where that part of the story goes. But the fact that it do does go somewhere significant is, I have to say, it took me pretty significantly by surprise. One thing I wanted to mention was, as we know, Taika Waititi is working on an, a film adaptation of The Incal. And that is going to be a tall order, right? That's just a, the scope of it, the metaphysical aspects of it, the spiritual aspects of it. It's just going to be hard to encompass everything that takes place in that original comic. And put it into a visual form that will, you know, make sense. But I can see how, in my brain, how that might happen. To make a film adaptation of this seems to me absolutely impossible. Like, it just doesn't seem like you could even tell this story. Like, you might be able to tell, like, the first book of this as a story. But at, by the time you get halfway through and you have heads switching and babies getting their heads blown off and, uh, like, like basically bringing creatures back from the dead... I don't know. It just seems like it would be impossible. Any quick thoughts on that, Julie? You think you could make a film version of? Uh, maybe not you, but maybe I, you. Uh, a I? Jesus, not me. <laughs> I mean, paleo Jesus, not me. <laughs> um, Bio shit. <laughs> I, I don't, 
you know, it's interesting because I feel like there's a lot of books that people are say have would be impossible and sure. you know because like once Certainly. you would have said lord of the rings is impossible right absolutely and that's been done in a, in a very very good way this seems to me like it would be more a problem because it's so fucked up and i think that would be more of the issue because you know we know how hard jodorowsky is willing to go and so we're not surprised by it but i think yes there's a lot of stuff going on in here that is uh, will you know he i think he just wants to push your boundaries and poke your buttons and make you upset and i think that's kind of what i like because he feels punk rock uh but i think people would probably have issues with a lot of <laughs> the content uh but you know to those people i say uh whatever <laughs> <laughs> uh just to add to what both of you were saying by the way i at first i welcomed the tonto and lothar interruptions because because of the fact that it added a little levity to things, but they become so repetitive because it's just the same thing over and over where Tonto's telling the story, Lothar interrupts with some observation like, oh, they can't possibly get out of that. Like it's some old timey serial. And then Tonto insults him horrifically and sometimes threatens him, threatens not to tell the story anymore. It is important as a framing device because of it, inter, it, you know, interjecting the idea of the Meta Baron getting his eyebrow cut and things like that and, and really reinforcing the importance of that before we finally hear that story. And of course, it's also necessary for what we find out at the end, which again, we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah. But I don't think we need it as much of it as we get. Like yeah, the beginning give, and give the him, end is Give enough. him like one panel every once yeah. in a while, right? To be like, oh, we're still here, guys. And then on you go with the story. <laughs> I, I, I mean, my assumption is that it, the way that this was released that that was probably a useful tool in some ways for telling the story to people who were coming in at weird points. But Uh. I don't even think it totally, you know, so like if you read old comics, there's always some interior monologue with a superhero where he's like, in theory, thinking about what's been happening lately. But it's really just for you because you probably missed some issues and they're trying to catch you up. And I think that's how this was supposed to work. But, uh, you know, a good, you know, maybe not in this section, but at least towards the end of the series, it's not doing that anymore. They're not actually adding anything. They're just insulting. It's just Tonto insulting Lothar. And, like, it, it just feels like if there was a function of this that, like, in a monthly sense, we have to catch up the reader, at a certain point, it's stopped being that and it just became and again for me the issue there is not actually the interruption it's that they're not funny i didn't think they were funny from the beginning so like if i thought those sections were funny then i'd say well i don't know if i need it but i don't mind it but like from the first moment i thought i know why this is here but this is annoying and then it just gets more and more annoying and then i actually love the wrapping them up in some way, which we'll get to mm-hmm. later. We could say that. I'm sorry. Sorry, listener. I know that must get annoying. Uh, I love the way it's no, wrapped up. No, it's enticing. Up. This is how you sell them. <laughs> yeah, this true. is how you make them if want to listen. If you keep listening, you'll find out what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> I, I love the way he sort of ties it together. But clearly, that's a decision that was made on the run. That wasn't like when he introduced them, like, this is going to be the big reveal. Because he's already said that. He figured he figures out problems as he goes. They re- reveal themselves from his unconscious, which is fine. And I think this reveal was great. But I, if I had to choose between the reveal or or not suffering them throughout the read, I would go without them. I'd rather not have them. It's hard to tell what was planned from advance, in advance, right? Maybe he had an idea of where these characters were going from the beginning because 
of and that is the reason for the interjection just to remind the audience that they're there because they're going to be coming i don't know hey i'm not i'm not putting it past him is what i'm saying especially because you at the very least would think that he has some idea of where he wants it to end because it has to fit somewhat into the chronology of the Incall books right so but i don't know and i'd be interested to hear more from him and if you are a listener who maybe knows a little more about about that you could certainly uh, contact us um dune as we mentioned in our Incall episode all the work that went into the Jodorowsky Dune film, parts of that, like a lot of the artwork, a lot of the uh, the characters even, and some of the design, that all went into the Incall, but it also carried on and into the Metabarons. I wanted to ask the both of you if, you, if you saw that influence while you were reading, or even if you noticed it in characters and any other elements, starting with you, Julia, did you feel the Dune influence on this work? Totally. Yes, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, right. in, in, a, in a way that, you know, it's one of those things where like, I'm in favor of taking an idea. So like, don't make a remake or a reboot, like take an sure. idea and make it slightly different. So it's your own. Yeah. And this is kind of what this is like. It, yeah, it, it is Dune kind of, but it's also his idea of it. And he was able to go further in that direction than they probably would have in the movie he was going to make anyway. Very much so. Like yes. now he can go way into that idea. And I think that probably the ideas that interested him about Dune maybe weren't really what Dune's about. <laughs> so sure. he was able to kind of be like, okay, well, Dune, but my Dune. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you see echoes of famous moments from Dune. Again, I'm only familiar with the first book, as, as we've already talked about in previous episodes. But like even the pain box, there's elements of that. And the the we have the Shabdaud witches who are sort of like the Bene Gesserit. And like just, just the idea of all these planets having these political machinations and uh and and these warlords that are that are trying to you know un, uh, undercut other civilizations how about you uh, Liam did you see a lot of dune in what you were reading here uh I think at first like you pointed out already with the witches and the res- the planet with the resource that puts them in deep danger uh yeah I think I think I did see some of that at first although he, by the time we're getting to the metabarons I think he's far enough away from dune that i feel like what i'm seeing more is not dune but his dune like right. i saw much more reflections of the dune that he didn't get to make and sure. a little less of what i think of as the book well the way it started to resemble dune eventually which i don't think was actually intentional because it doesn't sound like when he talks about the book that he really saw it this way is that the story is so tragic because the original, you know, originally Dune is the trilogy, and the, that first trilogy is a tragedy. Like, that's the point, is that, you know, Paul Maldib is a failure. You know, that's that's kind of the idea of the series. And so, um, in the sense that the Metabarons are perfect in every way except for their tragic and everything goes wrong for them. Like, it's like, if their only measure was as dealers of death, each Metabaron becomes perfect. But when it comes to the things that they want out of life, none of them are happy. Everything is bad. And so, like, that, in that sense, it did start to remind me again of Dune, less in the details and more in some of the, uh, uh, the feeling of this story is going away that is not going to be fun for people, you know, in, right. in, in a sense. Although it, it was, in a lot of ways, a much more, I think, personal tragedy. You know, Dune becomes a tragedy for the whole galaxy. And this is a little bit more a tragedy for the Metabaron because as the stories go forward, we care more about the Metabarons. Almost every other planet 
are just assholes in his way. You know, like there are <laughs> there are occasionally sympathetic characters outside of the Metabaron himself. And to be fair, the Metabaron isn't that sympathetic in the first place. But you know, there are other characters that maybe you might latch onto. But uh, you know, whole civilizations are presented as you know jerk offs. Basically, if if you end up caring about where he's going or what he cares about, it's like that. The, those. You're a little less concerned that maybe because something happened, this horrible thing happened. It's like the narrative is sort of dealing out those massive extinction events as difficult details of a really awful world, you know. Right. And the way the series wraps up, I think, is really to to hammer that home. And even when a character that might be sympathetic, like Doña Vincente, who who is in the sure, kind of second yeah. half of thing, like she's introduced as someone who's very sympathetic, but you know, as soon as she's introduced, that Things are not going to go well for her. In fact, she's basically introduced where things had already been been going horribly, and they yeah. just kind of get worse as they go along. And uh, some of the fates of the characters in this are horrifying, right? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of really kind of unpleasant stuff to consider, and it, it manages to both talk about death on a unbelievable scale, like of hundreds and millions, but also very individually and, and emotionally important. Uh, which I think is, is you know, a, 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 again, credit to Jodorowsky being able to pull off that. Though, still, those those massive, those moments where it's just like a room full of people and the Meta Baron's like, I'm pissed now. I'm going to kill everybody in the room. And he just makes this giant bloodstain. That just happens a lot throughout it. But I mean, sure, when you have I a mean character, we've talked mm-hmm. about how they like resembles Greek myths, right? Where sure. a lot yeah. of, if you yeah. look at the Greek tragedies, they're real messed up right oh, like yeah. we talk you yeah. know we're talking about incest and all that kind of stuff like that's all par for the course there and you know how do those tragedies end like it's big bloodshed like that's what yeah. everybody wants to see so this is another thing that i think goes along those lines absolutely yeah because we're talking about characters that are you know they're more human than human right they're there are they are godlike and if and they're also put in comparison to people who are all too human all the time so uh you know there are a room of people who are like you know, oh, we don't believe in the Meta Baron anymore. We don't think he's so tough. And then he'll just show that his his ability to kill is is just beyond what they could ever even consider. Well, and We're, a lot of the people who want ill for him are revealed to also be bad. You know what I mean? Like, yes, <clears throat> someone might read this and be concerned for the for the ultra violence. Though, why would you read this if you're that concerned for that? But <laughs> let's say you are. Very often, the people he's interacting with are like. Their desires are extinction level events as well. Yes. It's not. It's not like he's coming up and being like, "Oh, this is an entire planet of charming pacifists. Better murder them." Which, granted, you get the idea that maybe that does happen at certain points when the matter barons turn dark. But yeah. when they're at their best options, we're at least not presented with that. We're presented more with a cutthroat world in which, if he's going to have the kind of dominance that is important to the character, it's going to be savage you know yeah yeah there's a part in this in the next four books where he literally destroys an entire universe and where we are it is presented to us like hey if he didn't do it they would have kept attacking our universe so i guess that's all he could have done it still is uh it's still i think there's some intentional moral quandary at the uh, core of that you were mentioning the greek myths uh julia and the idea that that a lot of what we see here is pitched like like a mythos, like something that's that's told in in the realm of magical realism. It, were there any twists in the series that you had difficulty accepting? Oh man, yeah, I just tried to go in with an open mind, you know, yeah. because I feel like I 
I, the thing that's so delightful about Jodorowsky is I, I never know what direction it's going to go in. And it always goes in a direction that I could never have fathomed because my brain is not nearly like a billionth of the genius that his is, right? And he's just going to go in a direction that my brain cannot fathom. So I love being surprised by him. And so I try to just kind of look at everything. And yeah, everything's shocking, right? This whole world is shocking. And what everybody's wearing and saying to each other and what's happening and how uh, normal death is, is that, you know, normal mutilating and killing your children and your fathers. Sure. And like, that's all just, that's cool. Like, you know, like the, the kind of, you know, I think Jodorowsky, and this is the same with Paul from Dune, right? Like you have this ideal version of what what you think being a warrior is and and having this strength and if i let my you know let somebody mutilate me that it makes me a strong person like i will never understand that sure but i feel like that kind of stuff is 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 in the way some of the most shocking stuff to do to see your family do like like to let your someone do that for you to make someone mutilate themselves for you seems really horrible yeah and i think it actually uh, w- the place that this series gets to reflects on the idea of how horrible that is and maybe how unnecessary some of it was. Liam, we have a character who has no dick who has to procreate. We have characters with no head who have to procreate. We have characters that have to impregnate themselves in order to procreate. But were there any other <laughs> elements of this story that you had difficulty kind of accepting? Well, focusing on this section, ending yeah. with Steelhead... I really thought I don't know what he's gonna do, and like, yeah. I didn't. Could you just explain just who Steelhead is, just briefly. There's a character who, so after um, Agnar and Oda have a child, but it's not Oda; it's Oda possessed by Honorata, um, <laughs> which is his mother, which yeah, is his which mother. Is his mother. <laughs> um, uh, Agnar, uh, I guess he k- tries to kill. His son, who becomes Steelhead, so basically the dude's head is exploded, and they replace it with a robot head, and then he becomes a, the robot-headed future Meta Baron. And why don't they just bus. give him a robot head that looks like a C-3PO kind of head, where they can like talk and see normally, and not just like a big <laughs> steel block? They live in the far fucking future, man. <laughs> I don't. I don't know why later, when when the character has their eyes replaced, and we find out that she's hideous now because she has weird looking eyes. Well, once he realized that that they're hideous looking why didn't he just have them replaced with ones that are less hideous looking if yeah, that was just, such a hang-up for him i know i i, I, I agree I, I i think i interestingly i think that uh as a writer yodorowsky develops real fucking uh uh enmity towards this poet character like when the poet character is first presented uh, we'll we'll get there i don't know yeah, i don't yeah. want to jump that far ahead sure the sure. point is I kind of broke this up, not intentionally, but I kind of broke up my reading between these two sections. I read these first four, sure. and then I came back later. And when I ended with this whole steelhead thing, I thought, I don't know where the fuck they're going to go with this. I don't know how this is going to work out. Like, I really thought, like, that's it. Like, there's no, like, obviously there's more for me to read, but there's no way that this is going to be good. And then as it starts with steelhead, I just thought, there's no fucking redemption here. Like, what could possibly happen? And the solution of the thousands-year-old preserved head of a, of a, of a poet, <laughs> and then the movement of that towards where it goes, which we'll discuss after the break, 
I didn't see any of that shit coming. That's where, I mean, every part of this is surprising, but the part where the surprise was such that I was like, I didn't think you could do it, but you did. That was that moment. I thought, there's no way this is going to get better. I think I'm kind of not into this anymore. And then it turned around and I was back on board and I was like, that's unbelievable, actually. Yeah. We we end this. Uh, oh, my this God. Section. I'm seeing Sorry? somebody propose to somebody else in front of me. I'm so sorry. <gasps> oh, <laughs> no, it's my okay. Gosh. Amazing. <laughs> Go out and tell them about Steelhead. They'll love it. <laughs> His head blows up and then he doesn't have emotions guys, anymore. I know you just got engaged, but like, Jodorowsky, yo. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that might be distracting. <laughs> so this volume ends, as you suggested, Liam, with Steelhead. Steelhead is the meta baron, now with a big metal head and no emotions. And he's kind of a psychopath because all he cares about is money. All he cares about is killing. And like yourself, Liam, I was left not cold, but like concerned. I'm like, I don't really want to spend that much time with this character that I dislike to this level. And I had no, even with the creativity that, that we had seen on display, I had no idea how, uh, how Jodorowsky was planning to wriggle himself out of this scenario. And the fact is, I guess he didn't either at the moment, but what he came up with was very creative. Before we get to part two, the, the final four issues, I just want to ask either of you if you have any final thoughts on this first half of the Meta Baron's saga, starting with you, Julia. It's hard for me to separate. I feel like you need to ask me my final thoughts at the whole, yeah. like the final shebang, because I can't sure. really separate them in my head like that. Yeah, it's hard, especially because we've been living it so much over the last few weeks, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I was reading them one after the other, but sometimes breaks in between, you know, issue three and four, sometimes between seven and eight. It is hard to talk about it in sections, though I do feel like, it, not that there's a tonal difference, but certainly things ramp up and they build on each other that by the end, it's hard to imagine where you started from. Like you're mm -hmm. so far away from the more intimate story at the beginning by the time you get to that end. How about you, Liam? Any, any thoughts before we move into part two? I mean, other than my concern that I was feeling about Steelhead, everything else is really about how it, the thing ends up. So I feel like let's move forward because a lot happens in this next section too. There's a lot happening all all the time. Uh, so yes, let's move into the second half of the Meta Baron saga. Uh, once again, encompasses four issues. The first one is Steelhead, the Grandfather from 1998. In this issue, Steelhead battles and kills Agnar, uh, conquers Donia Vincenta's heart using the head of the poet Zared Kresia, uh, and naming himself the Melmoth. Uh, then there is the next issue, Doña Vincente Gabriela de Roca, the grandmother from 1999. In this issue, Melmoth and Doña Vincenta deal with Don Nicanor. You got to forgive me, by the way, on some of these pronunciations. And a techno-techno attack on, <laughs> on Philodendra. Milmouth destroys his head, and Doña Vincenta is pregnant with twins. Then we move on to Aghora, the father-mother from 2002. That's where Doña Vincenta has given birth to twins, a boy and a girl, but due to her weakened state, only one can survive. To his wife's surprise, Steelhead chooses to save the girl, hoping that his choice will give his love the will to survive, even though the Metabaron lineage can only pass from man to man. Or can it? We'll talk about that. <laughs> is the birth of Aghora the first female Metabaron, or something much more sinister? That moves into the final issue, Nameless, the last of the Metabarons from 2003. In this issue, the truth about Lothar's identity is revealed, the super lice threaten the universe, and Steelhead and the Meta Baron face each other in a space battle. Gonna start with it. We already teased it a few times now. The is there is a reveal uh in the final couple of issues here about what is going on between Tonto and Lothar. It is revealed that Lothar was actually Steelhead the entire time. Uh, he basically, it, he was uh, uh, transposed and his memory was wiped 
but uh, but it, he was put into this robot uh, that was then made subservient to the Meta Baron. Starting with you, Julia, even though you were irritated by Tonto and Lothar, uh, even though it kind of probably, it certainly felt to me that at times, like that it wasn't go- meant to head anywhere. It's just, it was a uh, a useful a useful mode of just kind of filling in the story at the beginning and end and kind of piecing everything together and, and, and kind of attaching all the pieces together. What did you think of this wild twist? I thought it made me like them a little bit more. Sure. And I go, okay, all right. It's come around to somewhere. It They were there for a purpose. It wasn't just randomness or maybe it was just randomness to a point where he was like, eh, let's make something of it. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, it, I thought it was a cool twist. It didn't really occur to me to think about you know where if because as we said like we don't we assume that Jodorowsky is not working off a huge storyboard that's planning the next sure. 20 years of his life right that he's just kind of going one by one and so it's a wonder if this ever crosses mind when he's writing Steelhead or if this was just something he's like hey you know what this would be cool I feel like I'm good either way yeah yeah it I I mean going back to what you said Liam I don't know if he planned it from the beginning I would have to think that as he was putting together the pieces of Steelhead's kind of journey, that at least before the final issue, he must have been considering it. Um, the part where where the Meta Baron returns back to his, his home and basically threatens and then continues to destroy both Tonto and Lothar, that's a really interesting twist generally in this series already, where they're basically transfer to another place we know that they have the knowledge of how the meta baron got his scar on his eyebrow and that's basically what he needs to save the world from knowing because it's his weakness right it shows something that 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 they could use to then destroy him that he can't have out there in the world the fact that they disobey him and then that continues it all of that material after they are quote-unquote destroyed i find so much more interesting than what comes before and it feels like there is a plan in place for where everything is headed and i will say and we'll talk about the ending of this in just a little bit it's not that I was ever finding it ponderous, but I did question several times in issues like six and seven that if there was a plan for this all wrapping up in a substantial and a satisfying way, and I should never have worried. Uh, and I think you've already teased that as well, Liam. Liam, what did you think of this twist? Did you think it was? Uh, did, did you think it fit? And did you think it was satisfying? I, hearing him say that he was figuring it as he went along, it on one hand made sense and it made me think okay now this decision i can kind of see like oh now i know what to do with these characters but then i also thought actually if i'm thinking about you know what to do with steelhead and how maybe steelhead can come back in a way where um where he's not uh He's not what he once was, right? Because that's sort of the big reveal. I mean, spoilers, I guess, is that Steelhead. They end up playing a, a trick on an entire uh, universe <laughs> of of space ticks, and in order in order for them to sell the trick, Steelhead has to play the villain in a way that fools these like these uh these these ticks that can read his 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 uh his uh his uh mainframe you know read yes. his his memory banks and he fucking fools them because he's able to sell it and the whole thing is in support of nameless not in 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 effort to destroy him yeah. and i think that that idea that in a sense this whole story has been leading to this thing because the idea that a meta baron could do that not just fool these ticks but also support his progeny 
Yeah. That's a new thing. That's fucking new. That's a new thing in the story. Uh, and, and it culminates then in Nameless having a new thing, which the only part about this whole thing that felt a little... Uh, it, I wouldn't accept it from anyone but Jodorowsky, is that the big change in the nature of the Meta Barons comes from Nameless not killing a bee. That that's what it is. Nameless doesn't kill a bee. And then don't, don't forget, he also likes to suck down that delicious honey. Right. But but that's the first step, is that he doesn't kill a bee, and that's the first time a Meta Baron has ever gone, I, I, you know what? I don't need to kill this thing. And it's like, well, there you go. You've changed the whole narrative of, of the Meta Barons. Uh, on the other hand, while I don't know if that was the the MacGuffin I needed for that narrative s- switch, that is the narrative switch I needed, right? Because we've spent so much time hearing about how <laughs> these Merida Barons are doing what they're doing. It might start to feel like, does Jodorowsky like these Meta Barons? Like, they're just terrible. Even Nameless. Right, right. Nameless is, without a doubt, for me, the most charming Meta Baron, still a monster. What yeah. are we doing here with this character? And that switch reminds you, like, Jodorowsky's known, even though he, I don't think, has plotted it out. I really do believe he figured it out as he went along. He's known what the story is all along, which is like, if you are um, this this great honor that they have, victory or death, that will, even if it yields victory, it still yields death. Everywhere they go is death. Everything they do is tragedy. Nothing works out for them. They could never be finished. They are always revenge and death and destruction. There is no hope for these characters until there is. And it's an act of compassion. Again, right. I wish it was more than a bee. The bee thing is not my vibe. No, I think the bee, I think the bee is cool because it's not about saving another human that you love, right? It's about this Correct. little creature right. that's, that's, that's has no opinion of you, doesn't really know who you are. It's just this thing that doesn't really matter at all. As I suppose, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's sweet. I 100% feel you. For me, Julia, that's a little too Buddhist for my taste. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a little too detached because I think there really is a, a, a segment of thought influenced by that kind of philosophy that feels like the only way this decision could be true compassion is if it is detached from all the other motivation factors, which throughout the story we see there is love and passion and politics and all these things, and they corrupt all the decisions. So only in deciding not to kill a bee could you have the sort of act of compassion that releases the spirit inside of him. And for me, I don't. I just don't like that. I just don't. Okay. That's just not my vibe. Now, I don't what, what care. If, what, if Liam, what if instead of bee it was called a, a cyber bee? Would that be <laughs> a paleo bee? It, it's a paleo. I mean, I think it is a paleo bee, right? Like maybe it is. I don't know. I don't even. I feel like are are there even animals anymore? I mean, I know there was the tarantula wolf thing, but uh, I don't know. There aren't that many animals. Anyways, point is uh, for me is like I don't love that, but I still love it where it got. You know, because that's the point is that like here's this most powerful being in the universe, and if maybe he turned from utter domination and destruction to, I don't know, maybe this universe could be less of a death trap. Like that would be amazing. Right now. I think that effort towards compassion actually doesn't solve anything. It actually leads to a whole new line of adventures that the meta Baron goes on because it's actually going to be much more difficult to live a life of compassion. Even as an invincible warrior, now that you're focused on compassion and not on just total death that's going to be fucking hard actually but yeah. i think that's fun that's going to be a whole new fun series but i don't know if that's going to happen or not with the new but, sort of run you know 
I feel like that's like a way I think about El Topo and I feel like he goes from the warrior to the spiritually enlightened. Yep. Yeah, and that's sure. kind of mm-hmm. his, he, he loves that. And I yes. think this is, so this is starting a new chapter for him that going like the second half of El Topo and then like, okay, mm-hmm. well, now we're in this mm-hmm. section. Well, it's also I, I, instead of having, sorry, just to interrupt quickly, instead of having a single person going through that transition, you basically have a lineage going through that transition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And that I think is, is, is certainly something a little different. I mean, yeah, we see it. We see it in the nameless Meta Baron at the end, but that transition happens because of Steelhead, who is as cut off and invincible as a Meta Baron could possibly mm-hmm. be, combined with a poet who, you know, opens his heart to everything, except, I guess, a woman with weird looking eyes. Well, yeah, I love I love that Joe Rossi's like, oh, you thought this poet was good? Nah, he sucks. Let me show you how he sucks. <laughs> but I do think, like, weirdly, from the beginning, the Meta Barons has been about consequences of choices. Yeah. That every choice has consequences and you have to navigate <laughs> that. That's so weird to say in a comic in which there are multiple times where whole civilizations are exterminated based on the whims of whoever. Often the worst people, right? Like the techno sure. priests kill how many people? And they're like the worst fucking yep. you know, characters in the book. But that that just because the effect of those consequences is huge at times, massive amounts of death and destruction, that doesn't change the fact that that's what the comic seems interested in is consequences, whether that's consequences for the ones you love or consequences for the whole fucking universe. And that first decision way back at the beginning doesn't resolve itself until no name doesn't kill a bee. That all of those things that happen throughout the story are all the results. And they weren't all there. As much as the story is about fate, they're not necessary results. There are multiple places where other decisions could have been made and changed the results, but none of it would have happened without those early events. And I love the mythic quality of that and yeah. the way that despite the amounts of death and just wanted destruction, I still think the comic is taking the idea of consequences seriously. And that's interesting in a comic that otherwise feels fun. And, you know, a baby is 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 uh is a uh, is a uh, nannied by a by a giant monster tarantula <laughs> and yet this is a comic that takes certain ideas seriously i love that combination of vibes you know and it's very jodorowsky i yeah, want to know Jodorowsky. how would you have liked it to to why how, what what should uh nameless's epiphany have been Oh, I'm not going to been happy with. I'm not going to claim that I have the perfect answer because I think I'm you're right. I'm not saying you do. I'm asking for what would make I would you I happy. would want something because I I would want something that was a little more consequential uh in the sense of like um one of the many places where whole civilizations or uh species even or whatever it is that there's something that um relates more to a more personal connection because I I think the 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 B makes it feel a little abstracted to me that like well you would need this thing to which you have no direct connection in order for it to be true compassion and I think actual compassion is embedded within the complications that actually I think a, a relationship that is as messy and complicated as all his other relationships and yet he chooses compassion instead of the vengeance that runs throughout their history, that would feel more related to reality as I see it. Uh, whereas this feels like a, a narrative decision that's more based in we have to be somewhat separate from some of the messiness in order to make a, a, a decision that's related to the kind of like life-changing compassion on display here. I, and, I lean a little closer to you on this, Liam, though I have to say I didn't really have any issue with the bee itself. It was the immediate follow-up, you know, giving him his sense of taste back, d- directing him to the honey. I like the idea of him convening with his own ancestor after kind of cursing them. That oh, to me sure. Feels, 
like really appropriate yeah, 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 yeah. and them giving something back to him the idea that someone so detached from humanity you know give them a little bit more something that can, can can create that connection but just the idea that he goes from not killing the bee to seeing the hive to like eating the honey and it's just like okay i mean it all seemed a little well, i i mean i will say narratively this is less cliche right a killer who suddenly decides he doesn't want to kill because i don't know of if it was a baby or you know whoever you know whatever the decision was that's a that can feel a little cliche right there's a lot of stories like that the fact that it is a bee there is something about that that's so novel that it is interesting in that sense and that like just on a purely narrative basis there's not a lot of other stories where that sort of act that is is not based in something more relatable is is what happens i mean i guess um, in that sense, I, I do kind of like that it's something kind of alien. No one's looking at a bee and being like, oh, it looks like me. I have compassion. It's like something sort that it feels almost detached. But I, I don't can, know. Bees are cute. You. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> but they can hurt you, right? So it is compassion. I mean, this is the, this is the meta baron. It's not going to hurt him. Come on. <laughs> Nothing can it's hurt not, him. It's not like a ladybug, right? Like it's something that does have a stinger. Yeah, it does have a, a self-production. But I also think that to the meta baron, everything is as concerning as a bee, right? I mean, it could be an entire planet full of people. It, it, it is just it, – it is reflective of what he could sni- snuff out with a single kind of movement. I mean, when hand. he was facing like millions of the one person and he just reversed the self-destruct energies on his sword, <laughs> I thought – I was like – some part of me should think this is ridiculous and I loved every second. I was just like, yeah, and then he shoots her with the self-destruct energy from the sword. So good. I was – It's there are so many decisions like that that I feel like if you aren't invested, it would be hard to tell you over right. a cup of coffee – Oh, and then this happens, and they have the person go, oh, that sounds sick. Like, I think you have to be invested to go, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm into that, you know? So I mentioned already that Doña Vincenta, who Steelhead was uh, in a relationship with, she gives birth to twins, a boy and a girl. She basically is willing herself to die at that point because she hates Steelhead. The... Metabarons can only pass uh, to you know on to the next uh, lineage through a male, and uh, Steelhead has to choose one of the two children to live because only one can live for for reasons that are explained in the book. Because he wants his wife to live, he chooses the girl instead of the boy, but the girl then <laughs> then her brain dies, so she take he he takes sorry the brain from the male. And puts it into the female, and that is what will become the metabaron that later will impregnate itself in order to become pregnant and pass on to the next one. I know that sounds strange, which it is, and complex, <laughs> but I did want to get both of your take on the idea of Akora, the father-mother, as a transgender character. We cannot expect, I don't think it's fair even to expect, that uh, Jodorowsky in 2002 is going to have the sensibilities that we have in 2022 uh, or the sensitivities. I mean, he is not known necessarily as the most sensitive artist in regards to sexuality and things like that. We've talked about that in the past. Starting with you, Julia, what did you think of this character? Did you think it was a reasonably progressive take on a transgender character? I mean, Agora's my favorite meta baron. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. they're. I think I'm gonna. I'm gonna use they. I guess because we're gonna be. It is 2022. So um, I thought they were really, really neat. And I think that the idea of, you know, having a male brain inside of a female body is 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 what it's kind of like, right? So I think that they have this idea, but it's also 
taking away gender and and kind of making it neutral, right? And it becomes almost like a non-binary kind of deal where like you're not really male, you're not really female, you're just just you. Uh, I like that they, you know, and, and that they're able to show just as much you know, because it, it, you know, this sun to sun thing is, you know, of course, it's it's the mythos that this is what happens. But I, but I think to use this character in a way that isn't cliche, that is meant to be shocking, but is also a character that's super cool. I thought. What yeah, did you guys absolutely. think? Absolutely. Oh, I, I think that this is my take on it. Which is that there's some complexity in regards to, you know, the idea of what the male brain brings to the female body and all that sort of thing. And even the idea that the the character does surgery on itself. Um, and so it has to use a creature to breastfeed the child and things like that. But it's, to me, it's it's intentionally tangling with a very thorny issue. And it's it's taking that and kind of following a path based on this kind of futuristic technology that is very sympathetic to a character that in others' hands would be treated freakish, would be treated as a monster, would be treated as something that shouldn't exist. All these things that we've seen in media from even 2002 when it comes to transgender characters. So to me, it's it because of the sympathy, because we are meant to, uh, if not outright like, then certainly uh, uh, have have some sort of empathetic feelings towards this character it feels like a step forward that said i would i would love to see writing from uh someone who from a trans writer about how they feel this reflects the experience of a trans person how about you liam i know it's it is a fraught topic uh and i don't want to because we have warm feelings towards jodorowsky to say that he he handled this perfectly but uh, how did you think that he he dealt with it in this comic i don't know that it would completely work like pass whatever sort of sniff test for a 2022 conversation on trans and gender and non-binary and all the sort of complicated issues there but i don't think it's meant to really i think it's you know there is a lot of gender things going on throughout the story and so here's a moment for Jodorowsky to do what i think he's inclined to do a lot of times which is deconstruct something like he has sort of pushed some very gendered ideas early on and here it's starting to come apart. And one of the themes throughout the book for me is how often something is treated as a tradition and then broken. And we are reminded that this tradition, we saw the characters decide, I guess this is what we're doing now. Right. Right. Like a lot of things is like, this is what we do. (laughs) I get it because these are long lived characters, but as a reader, I remember when someone decided that's what you do or they or they changed it, right? Like the 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 Casticas were never going to leave that planet and then they fucking left the planet. You know yeah. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the, the the idea I think that comes across oftentimes is some of the things that we defend onto death because they are immutable are not immutable. Someone changed them and someone will change them in the future and that's just how it is. And so the very idea of like it could only pass to a to a man. It's like, well, all right, I guess, but uh here's this character who again, I agree with you, Julia, is my favorite. I mean, nothing against Nameless, the OG for us, yeah, even though for he's sure. the last one, but like <laughs> we don't we literally haven't spent as much time with Nameless as we had with some of these other meta barons like that's true. he he's important in uh in the in call but we've spent a lot of time with the other meta barons and i think uh i think this uh uh you know um uh agora is the first where i just 
I felt charmed and I really pulled for them and I really felt like they were doing something really interesting. And um, yes, it's it's a bit complicated as a lot of Yodorovsky things are, but I think if you accept it as in a lot of ways, and this is just this character, it's all over the place. These are archetypes. You know, right. this is a this is an archetypical idea going on. I think it's really interesting, and I think there's a lot to think about there. Uh, and it really works for what he's doing, which is trying to get to Nameless. This is a journey to Nameless, and yeah. then a journey through what how we move forward with Nameless. And I think in that sense, it's all very effective. But we also have in the end, Cal, you know, in, in and we have here with Janice, Jenna, the they're both like the they're looking for the perfect and the androgynous person, right? right? They're looking for a perfect split male female right so they're looking for like a non-binary god really is what they're looking mm. for so i think yeah. that they look at it that way and you go like that's neat that he's saying we need somebody that's both you can't have perfect harmony unless you have both it's it's also an extension of the idea of balance right both the black and white of the incal then you have the poet and the warrior in steelhead and then we have the male and the female and the one character i mean i just think that it seems to all be an extension of things that Jodorowsky have, has explored. But it, I think that considering how wrong this could have been, I think it, it plays pretty reasonably uh, in the year 2022 without, of course, in, in, because it doesn't have to engage with a lot of the complexities of whether if this character existed in this year, as opposed to a, a weird future where people, like you were saying, Liam, that, that traditions can change on a whim. Yeah. Uh, and, and even when we see that the Meta Baron line was broken because the one Meta Baron didn't kill the their parent because the parent was still alive, you know, it, it all it is is something that they keep within themselves as a matter of honor that what you find out later is none of that is really that important. Uh, I was I asked actually asked both of you before we started recording who your favorite Meta Baron was. You've already answered. It's Agora, the father mother. And I think I'm right there with you. I There's a part of me that wanted to say Steelhead because he's such a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a Steelhead, man. He's a Steelhead. Uh, but also just because he is so... Um, I, I love the idea of a character that has almost no redeeming qualities that at the end of the story does one thing to somewhat redeem himself. There's I, I love that trope and I love how it plays out in the last issue here. So there's a part of me that has the, well, hey, I'll always have a fidelity to Steelhead. I'll always have a fidelity to Nameless. But yeah, Agora is definitely the character that I felt like had the complexity and ability, a, a complexity that was both uh, godlike, but also relatable. Right, some of the emotions were things that I can actually uh, tune in with. Mm-hmm. Let's finish up by talking about the final issue, how things wrap wrap up in this. I think we've already talked about it a little bit. We have now Nameless. He battles, uh, or it appears that he's about to battle with Steelhead, who has come back from basically being frozen and sent into a, a place from, in the galaxy. Manages to make his way back from death after being worshipped as a god for however many years and then reveals himself and just kills all the people who were worshiping him because again not a great guy comes back has his final battle and uh, you already explained what happened after that liam it, there's sort of these futuristic lice aliens that are trying to basically conquer the entire planet they hire steelhead uh there's a realization between father and son or i guess grandson and grandfather steelhead and, and nameless um that there's more at stake here than just honor. And uh, and it ends with, hey, a bunch of people dying, as per usual. Uh, starting with you, Julia, how did you think the Meta Baron saga uh, ended? Did you, did you I feel... Hear, I want to hear Doug's takes first, because he was talking about how moved he was by it. So I want to I want to hear his his go first. Oh, you mean Liam's take? Not, not no, Doug, I'm sorry. that's me. I'm sorry, Liam. 
<laughs> me too. I, oh yeah, I I uh, I loved how it ended up. Like again, I guess I focused. I I by criticizing the B, I may be distracted from the idea <laughs> that like the idea that the that the nameless is now moved towards compassion. That's what I fucking want. That is what I want. It's what I've always wanted. Uh, it's it's my thought with all these characters that are based on power is that their power is always wasted on bullshit. And it's a reminder that that's what Yodorowsky is thinking from the beginning, that uh, having an entire uh, line of people dedicated to vengeance is, is not – that's not meant to be um, noble. That's why shit keeps going wrong for them. And, like, I think because tragedy is so woven into the fabric of a lot of our narratives, I, I, I'm I, not even going to say I suspect. I fucking know there are people who've read this whole series who think the meta barons are so awesome because they're so yeah. tough and bloodthirsty. And, like, I think Yodorowsky loves that they are so fucking tough and bloodthirsty, but they're also flawed in every possible way, because they only believe in the power of violence or their mental powers, which is just a different kind of violence. And at no point do they realize, like, the universe runs on more than death. Though, to be fair, this particular universe, it's hard to see that, right? <laughs> it's, it's, but, but that's sort of the point, right? Is like, in making yourself the most invincible being in this very scary universe, you could accomplish more than being sad and drunk all the time uh maybe you could do something to make this world less like you and i i love that you know and that's my i'm sure someone's gonna say that's me being a sentimental sappy person but that's fine because that's the that's it that's all i care about that's the whole thing right and so it's you know for me it's just like that's that is sort of where i wanted it to go and the idea that we get to that place first with Steelhead setting aside everything that's animated the Meta Baron line and saying destroying these scary lice is far more important <laughs> than the fact that you didn't kill me or I didn't get killed the way I was supposed to be because this is a good and, and in a sense to be fair that's what happens Nameless has found a way to kill Steelhead if you don't do this thing it's the end of life period. Right. Probably not just all the life we know, but once the lice destroy all the beings we're familiar with, they're just going to destroy more beings. It's endless yeah. death with the lice. So you got to do this thing. And in a sense, that Nameless defeats Steelhead. That's how Nameless defeated Steelhead. By conven convincing Steelhead, this is actually the only thing you can do. And so I love, I love that in and of itself. But then also the idea that simply winning is not enough for Nameless, and that this move towards compassion is the only way to keep Nameless from just drinking himself to death is like, that also <laughs> rules for me. I love every aspect of that. I mean, it's stated throughout, right? Love is stronger than death. That's one of the, the things that we hear from characters throughout the story. and it's But those characters are always kind of stamped down because the person that they love ends up being killed or, you know, it, it they're never able to find peace with somebody that they love. So it had to be even more than that, that it's not just love, it's compassion, right? It's about mm -hmm. having a connection with the universe and loving the universe, even though it is a place of death and destruction. But hey, one of the reasons that this universe is so filled with death and destruction is because it's brought on by the Meta Barons, who are really experts at that. Those, The fact that the final two before Nameless, um, part of their job and training is to kill prisoners from planets where people are difficult to kill, right? I mean, just this idea that death is all they know and all they're raised in. The fact that they this ends with a little hope, I'm right with you, Liam. I, was, I felt kind of touched by it. it. It really did feel that in 
when you read eight volumes of something that feels not necessarily hopeless because it's always exciting and, and intriguing, but about characters that have 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 no ability to open themselves up to the world, and then that it ends with this one great, you know, show of of both compassion and connection, and then. We know that this character is then going to go on and, and try to live a more compassionate life. Hey, you know what? I'll take it. It feels very Jodorowsky at the very least. Sorry, Julia, you were saying? Uh, I just think that it's really interesting because you have Nameless as a character who, from the be- very beginning, is like, I'm not having kids, not yeah. doing it. Yeah. Right? So you, he's basically living, knowing from very early on, he's going to live this life of suffering alone. Right. And this is something that he's taken on himself. So he's taken on the burden of being the meta baron in the physical world, but also this internal turmoil and to never have, you know, not only the love that he would have, because we know that the meta barons can only be begat after, you know, acts of real love, um, but also to know that you're never going to have. You know, because like the thing the meta barons live for is like to teach their children. They, like I have to teach them, I extend the way, and know that they are going to be stronger than me, and to have this life that has meaning because the next generation will be stronger than you are. Uh, but he has none of that, so I think that that's something that's really powerful. Um, the fact that he becomes happy, I guess, is good because he's never going to know romantic love. So to have this kind of love is the only kind of love he'll probably know. Yeah, a greater love for the universe. I love it. Uh, I I really have to say that I was surprised consistently by this work, not just because of the twists and turns that Jodorowsky brought to it, but also just the fact that uh, that it that it did wrap up in a way that felt purposeful. And maybe that just has to do with Jodorowsky's creativity, because uh, as we've already stated several times, who knows what sort of plan he had from the beginning. But this is a work that works as a complete work, as a complete set that you can read start to front and really get something satisfying out of it. Maybe do it over a few days. <laughs> don't don't mainline it. There's just too much. But it's, it is something that I feel um, in some ways, and maybe this is the question that I want to end with outside of any final thoughts, which is, do you prefer this or the in-call? Starting with you, Julia. Ooh. I really like the idea of taking a character and be like, okay, let's go back three set, three generations in their right. life and get to how did they get to who they are? I think what a fascinating creative idea that is. So I think that that wins for me on that level. But I think I think I like them both very much. I, I don't really think I could choose one over the other. I think they and they both kind of fill equal space in my brain, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, they're so different in a lot of ways, not just visually because of the artwork and not just tonally because of the characters that are that are being focused on, but just the structure of it, right? Just the, just the uniqueness of going through this family history. I guess it'd be what I should be saying from for my own response to that question is it really depends on the mood I'm in. Now that I've experienced this entire eight volumes, I feel like I can pick up one of the books and because I know how the pieces connect, I can just enjoy it in and of itself. Uh, and that kind of particular piece, as opposed to having to read all of it, where if I was going to read the in-call again, I'd kind of have to start from the beginning and go all the way through. How about you, Liam? Do you have a preference between this? Not that you have to choose. I think that um, from a distance, I prefer the in-call because I like the overall kind of uh, textures of it and where it goes and how much of it is philosophical. But I find this a lot more readable. I don't think I could pick up the in-call as casually 
you know, as as this. Sure. I think I could pick up, as you said, any volume of this and enjoy it and enjoy the characters and know where it's going. I think the ink call. I want to read it more when I have the time to focus and I'll feel right. more connected to it as a whole work than I, than I do just individual pieces. So I, I mean, I, again, I think you're right. You also don't have to choose, but if I had to choose like in a, from a distance, like which do I think works best overall? I think the ink call is a more complete story in my opinion, but I don't know. I had a lot of fun reading this. And I think if I was going to have something in my house that I want to just pick up and leaf through, which is how I relate to once I finish a graphic sort of novel <laughs> series, they kind of exist for me to just look at while I'm in the bathroom or while I'm hanging out sure. <laughs> because I've read it all. Right. I don't I don't necessarily do a, a full reread every time. This, I think, would actually be a lot more satisfying, whereas I think for me, the in calls harder for me to just jump in in a random spot and read for fun. Yeah, though I could see myself in this case, like picking up the final issue of Metabaron Saga and and kind of going through that again, sure, yeah, just to kind of regain some of those feelings and and you know, th- there's probably a lot that we missed out on, especially in the detail and the art that would probably uh, benefit from repeated v- uh, viewings as well. Second with you, Liam. Any final thoughts on the Metabarons now that you've uh, finished it? And I'm just going to also add one other question onto that, which is, do you have interest in checking out this this these other Meta Barons comic material that's out there. I do. I think that, um, um, I think that I, I feel like this is a complete story and I don't need those other materials, uh, per se, but I am very curious about them. And I think if anything, the thing I'll go to next is the series. That's just the Meta Baron. That's the continued sort of saga of just nameless, you know? Um, uh, I think the, other stuff like the prequel stuff or the weapons and things like that i will eventually read that but i don't think it's as important to me yeah especially i I wonder about the ones that are the the kind of continuation of this story i know that jodorowsky's on the front of the books i was reading online that maybe he just plots out the stories and then the writer kind of does all the writing inside of it and they're more reflective of his interest than some of the stuff from jodorowsky though you know i have no issue with the collaborative work as well uh over to you julia any final thoughts on the meta barons and do you have any interest in uh, investigating this other work well as you were just mentioning how you might have just the plot points and not necessarily mm-hmm. fill in the blanks which sounds like something you wouldn't want but i would like to take it to two places one is uh vc andrews and the other is francine pascal who did the flowers in the attic <laughs> series and also sweet valley high you didn't think you'd be talking about sweet valley high today did you suckers <laughs> But both of those are famous for uh, uh, V.C. Andrews died. And uh, so she plotted out like dozens and dozens of books. And so they've just been like V.C. Andrews still has books coming out, even though she's been dead for a really long time. And then I think Francine Pascal just was like, just everything's ghost written. So I think, you know, you can have a series that you're into and like maybe it's just like each book has a slightly different flavor. But, if, you know, me, I'm a Jodorowsky purist, so I would like it to be as much him as possible. And I think, yeah, I think it would be interesting to check out more because I always want more Jodorowsky. And you can ask me to read a thousand volumes and I would say, yes, please <laughs> give it to me. I'm testing the waters a little bit because, I mean, there will be opportunities in the future to catch up on some of the odds and ends of Jodorowsky's comic give it work to that me. we haven't. 
Yeah. So, and I mean, it's it's something that that we're gonna keep on the back burner. I feel like we've covered the core of what people love about the Meta Baron series. Uh, but there's some of those other ones are very well regarded and influential as well. Speaking of well regarded and influential, the Meta Barons is a beloved series. It's had a massive impact. Uh, lots of comic writers have have um, have have noted. Their love for the series. Matt Fraction wrote the intro to the collected work. David Goyer says, I think it's one of the, he says he's one of the greatest comic book collections or the comic book stories that has ever existed. And it's also been influential in the role playing game sphere. Uh, yes, there is a Meta Barons RPG, which I've never played. Uh, for those, and when I say RPG, I mean specifically like a, a paper dice type role playing game like Dungeons and Dragons. The Meta Baron's role-playing game is a mystical space opera role-playing game which uses the D6 system. The players play characters who are not the Meta Barons, but common people who are affected by the Meta Barons. Uh, and it says here, character progress depends upon adhering to an honor code. Heroes also have a Necro Dream points, which when they outnumber their Amorex slash Heroism points, strip them of their heroic quality and throws them back into idleness and decadence. We here at Jodowowski do not sneer or snob at people who like role-playing games. Uh, so, I mean, this actually sounds very interesting to me. I'm kind of glad that you don't play the, the actual uh, Meta Barons in it. That would be a very difficult game to try oh, to... Oh, I don't know. I was play. just thinking that's what I would want to do because, so my uh, my ex-boyfriend is a big D&D person. He's a... Sure. He has a... We can give a shout out to his company, Dungeon in a Box. It's a, it's a subscription service. So uh, I play Dungeons & Dragons with him quite a bit and I'm a terrible, terrible D&D player because... I have this like innate rebellion within me that I can't control. So when the entire party is like, let's do one thing. I'm like, no, no, I want to do this other thing. So it like wrecks the party every single time. <laughs> I'm ho And I try not to do it. And then I do it even harder. It's awful. And so I was terrible at that. But in this game where I'm like, what if I just go over and like fuck everybody over? That's good in this game. Like that's the point. Is like you're the meta baron, right? You your job is to like lead everything and and kill everyone. I was like, I could be into that. I like that in the world that we just read all of this material from. There isn't necessarily a lot of internal consistency. So the idea of a universe like this having having these stories that you are telling with friends within it, where the rules are sort of defined by what the story needs. That could be both frustrating and fun, depending on who your, I guess, dungeon master or game master is in those circumstances. Liam, any thoughts on the Metal, Meta Baron's role-playing game? Are you interested in trying it out? I I don't know. I, I'm still figuring out. <laughs> I'm still figuring out this whole world, Doug, as you know. And I, I think I want to figure out if I even like role-playing games before I try this one. <laughs> it's at least I think an interesting potential for for world sure. building where yeah. it's it's you know that you can tell your stories within it. It's just that we've already been talking about our skepticism regarding other people telling Jodorowsky's stories, and now you have the idea of like there are hundreds of people telling their own little but stories. I think that's cool, that man. Like if yeah, I can, me too. This, is, I do, this is kind of a way to live inside a Jodorowsky creation. And if you keep him in mind when you're doing your campaign, yeah. then I think that that would be rad. You could probably sucker yeah. me into a campaign for this. Hey, you know what? If anyone out there wants to uh, to spearhead that, uh, hey, I'm on board. I want to check it out. And it's certainly, I hope you know more about it than I do. I was just trying to read through the rule book today, and it, my eyes were glazing over. I had no idea how any of it works. Uh, speaking of influence, uh, it's not just in the visual medium. Uh, in February 2019, the American black metal band Byhargam, uh, or Byhargam, which takes its name from the weapons of the Metabaron, which, of course, we haven't covered yet, 
released their debut album titled Kestaka, uh, or Kestak, yeah, Kestaka. That is a musical adaptation of the Meta Barons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's black metal. It's not exactly the the genre that I generally choose to listen to, but I love that this exists. And in fact, we'll play some of the music from this album as we finish this episode, so you can hear a little bit about what that sounds like. Yes, Julia. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that but this is, feels like this is meta, right? Because you're you you first read about the Meta Barons in the Heavy Metal magazine, and now right. it actually is heavy metal. That. Honestly, I didn't even consider that, but you're right. It's kind of a beautiful, it's the circle of life, as uh, Elton John and Bernie Taupin once told us. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll play a little bit of that music at the end of this episode. Uh, Liam, did you get a chance to listen to any of this? No, no. <laughs> Are you a black metal guy? Not really. There's a couple of things here and there I like, but I'm not, I'm not stoked on it overall. I'm going to uh, listen, I though. Know. I think this is a cool idea. Yeah, I do too. Uh, Liam was was uh, was nice enough to make sure that this band did not have uh, white uh, supremacy leanings, so we feel comfortable. Uh, hey, we don't want to uh, paint with a broad brush, but it, in this particular genre, it does sometimes happen, isn't that right, Liam? I mean, I think sometimes is underplaying it, but yeah, I think that, that that's just the question: is that like you know, it is it is a uh, it is a very extreme form of music that often can relate to. Uh, an effort to be as hateful towards humanity as possible. And the question you always have to ask yourself is, is this a general hate or a specific hate? If it's general, cool. If it's specific, we have a problem. And and it's it's not always easy to tell just from reading lyrics. Sometimes you got to, you know, figure out like who put this record out, who has this band played with, whatever, whatever. And for some people, it's not an important question. I think there are people who just don't care. But for me, I'm not really interested in giving my money to people who hate me if I can help it. I mean, granted, I, I, I do shop at corporations, so I guess I'm missing the point there a little bit. But I mean, people who specifically hate me, I try not to do that. I appreciate that, Liam. And obviously, I think we feel the same way on this side of the table. But uh, for now, that's the end of the Meta Barons saga. Uh, if you listeners have any feedback to give in regards to that, yeah, please go over to cinemasmorgasboard.com and let us know what your thoughts are. If you have any experience with this comic series or maybe the the uh, extra uh, issues of this series that we have not yet covered, uh, tell us what you think. Tell us what we should cover, uh, what we haven't covered, what you think of, of everything that uh, that surrounds it as well on the next episode of Jodowski, hey we're going back to a movie but not one directed by alejandro Jodorowsky. it's one about alejandro Jodorowsky. it is a documentary from 1994 called the Jodorowsky constellation directed by swiss filmmaker luis uh, Mouchet, described as exploring the world of filmmaker and artist alejandro Jodorowsky through interviews with his contemporaries including playwright fernando arabel peter gabriel marcel marceau and Jodorowsky himself uh, I believe, I think I'm right on this, that neither of us have seen this documentary before. It is something I was aware of before we recorded our first episode, but it's not one that seems like it's talked about that often. Julia, are you excited to check out the Jodorowsky Constellation? You bet your fur, always. I'm excited. I haven't seen it. And so anymore, because I feel like there's so many stories that I'll never get sick of hearing them. Like he has such a, these 95 years of incredible stories that you could probably make 70 documentaries about and not get the same one in there. So the more you can give me, the better. <laughs> I mean, he's a great interview subject, right? I mean, that is one of the things that we've really learned here. And uh, yeah, just hearing him talk about his work, especially some, you know, a territory that maybe we haven't seen or hasn't been explored as much. Uh, and, and as a, maybe a counterpiece or, or something that goes along with, Jodorowsky's Dune. It'll be interesting to see how how he was viewed in 1994 
well, as we already saw with the uh, Jonathan Ross piece on our last episode, some of this work has been reevaluated pretty significantly since then, and how it was viewed in 1994 might be very different than how it was viewed in 2023. Liam O'Donnell, are you excited to check out the Jodorowsky constellation? Yeah, definitely. Are you a Peter Gabriel head? No, thank you. <laughs> Well, I love Peter I like Gabriel. Him. I like him very much, and uh, I'm that, I'm almost as excited about Peter Gabriel's <laughs> being part now, of. Now, I wonder what the connection is there. Do you know what the connection? I is? I don't. Not at all. Outside of the fact that you know Peter Gabriel when he was in Genesis, it's a progressive rock band that you know. I, I, there, it seems like the headier topics might cross over, but I don't know. I, I can't. I can't imagine Jodorowsky listening to Genesis. Yeah. I mean, well, that doesn't. I mean, if you yeah. listen to Pink Floyd, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> but I don't know. That I can see, though. Yeah, I know. I know Peter Gabriel isn't, but he always strikes me as quite uh, conservative. Just he feels very normal, like a very nice, normal British guy. Yeah, right. But he, he... And I feel like Jodorowsky seems like an insane man. I feel like it would be a strange pairing. Well, I'm not sure, but I'm excited to find out. Julia, it's always wonderful to talk to you. I know it was a big Thank ask you. once again to get you to read this um, very lengthy comic. Uh, a big ask. Are you kidding? Have I not just said how much I love it? <laughs> it's still a big ask all the same, just because of the time commitment. Julia, where can people find your work? Where are you out there in the world? You can find me at Julia C. Marquesi on uh, TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I have another podcast called Horror Movie Survival Guide, where you can find out how to learn to survive horror movies. And um, I really like talking about Jodorowsky with you guys. It's a lot of fun. And I've, even though I always feel like I'm more solid ground when we're talking about movies, there's something exciting talking about a medium that I just don't have as much of a connection with because I feel like, you know, who knows what we're going to see? Who knows what we're going to find with it? And who knows how that's going to be communicated to the world? Liam O'Donnell, where could people find your work out there? Well, they can find our latest episodes as well as other podcasts at cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. And Cinepunks is on social media, uh, same spelling, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. And, of course, they can dive into the uh, archive of Cinema Smorgasbord episodes over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or follow us, assuming there is a – I mean, who knows what's going on with Twitter. But we, <laughs> as of now, we're on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, and we'll let you know if we switch to – something else who knows what that'll be yeah and it'll always be connected through the cinemasmortisboard.com website you can follow liam on twitter at liam rules that's r-u-l-z and i'm on there as well at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l-e-y if you like what you're hearing why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice or even better just tell a friend that they should be listening to Jodowski. do they have interest in uh, alejandro Jodorowsky? that's a great podcast to listen to have they been meaning to get into the work of alejandro Jodorowsky? it's a great place to start we always appreciate it and we also appreciate any feedback that you might have i'd like to end it today with a, a brief quote from jodorowsky a very recent interview where he discusses the uh death of cristobal jodorowsky and about his own mortality speaking of his own mortality he's asked by the uh interviewer whether he feels afraid of death he says i'm not afraid of it but i don't want it i want to live as long as possible if i can live 10 million years i would live 10 million years because the most beautiful thing we have in life is to be alive it's amazing. It's wonderful. We are transforming from second to second. I'm not the same as I was when I started talking to you. In the center of the second is eternity, and in the center of a millimeter is the entire space that does not end or die. Imagine we are alive in the midst of this enormity. Uh, hearing Jodorowsky talk about his own death is 
<laughs> humbling, especially someone who has so much perspective on that as a subject. But knowing that he has been feeling that way while also putting his creativity towards another film to me is extremely inspiring. And I think my two co-hosts feel the same. For now, we need to say goodnight. We're going to be back very soon with the Jodorowsky Constellation. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.